that, that gives us the, this, this framework. That's why we read Romans 5, by the way, so we'll see that in a minute. And then finally... Okay. Yeah, so clarity on the nature of the church and subjects of baptism. Then we said, and we didn't really spend too much time on this, but we said there, there are different approaches or systems that are based on more continuity, less continuity, right? So you have sort of a radical discontinuity view, which would be sort of like the, the old Schofield classic dispensationalism. And then, but for our purposes, we sort of focused on um, what could be considered a radical continuity. And that is uh, what we call classic covenant theology. And so we, we kind of outlined, we didn't do too much about this historically, but we said that in terms of classic covenant theology there, they see three basic covenants, right? And of course they're related, but they're, they're three basic covenants. And those were... Yeah, so covenant with Adam, um, or... Yeah, covenant works, covenant redemption, and then covenant grace. And then at that point, we, we started to kind of explore this idea from a, a classic covenant perspective on this notion of covenant of grace, right? And so the covenant of grace, they would say, was established, right, in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise. Now this is where, this is where we sort of took some issue. So the covenant of grace is one covenant in substance within different administrations. Okay. So you have one covenant, covenant of grace, and you have two primary uh, administrations, the old and the new. And so you have this idea of the external administration of the covenant and the internal administration of the covenant. So the substance of the covenant of grace is, is in a sense, um, that which is the, 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 the unifying covenant through all covenants, but you have this application to the physical or the visible, right? And then you have application that is internal or spiritual. So what you end up having is believers and unbelievers in the same covenant, all right? So then the covenant of grace would be seen to be administered through all of these different covenants which end up differing in circumstances, but are the same in substance. Now, let me just, I want, I want to demonstrate that this is, this is exactly what is taught. So, uh, Vince, if I didn't know this, I, I'd have grabbed that really cool Bible and not give it back to you, but uh, <laughs> he has the Westminster Confession, and it's paragraphs five and six. Yeah, so if you want to stand up and read that, so everybody can hear. This covenant was, was differently administered, administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, Pascal Lamb, and other types of ordinances delivered, delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious the operation of the Spirit to instruct and to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Now, under the Gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, 
the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though, though fewer in number and, and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, different, different, uh, difference, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, you might want to go back and read that for yourself, too, but that last phrase in paragraph 6, so you don't have two covenants here, you have one covenant grace differently administered, right? So this is this is the, the view. Now the reason that this that's important to understand is because so the the covenant with Abraham is the covenant of grace. The covenant with Moses, Sinai covenant, is the covenant of grace. Different administrations of it. That is different circumstances, different ways it's applied, and so you end up having. This one covenant, now here's the thing, is that the covenant of grace, therefore, is operative, right, throughout all of Old Testament history. It finds its fulfillment, and of course they say this in the, in the section, it finds its fulfillment in Christ, okay? In, in other words, the final form of the covenant of grace is what you have in Christ in the gospel. But the fundamental problem with this idea of one covenant, different administrations, is that you end up having two, two things that, um, that I think are, are contrary to the teaching of the Scripture, in particular the teaching of the New Testament. One is, if you have that much continuity in circumcision, so if the covenant's made with believers in their seed, the seed enter that covenant by circumcision, a, a hard line of continuity is believers and their seed are in the covenant of grace in the new covenant, and children enter that new covenant through baptism. Okay. So the covenant of grace idea um, is the justification for paedo-baptism or infobaptism. So your kids receive the sign. Now they're externally in it, but they're still in it. Okay? The other thing that is the result of that is this idea of, um, of uh, it's, it's been called sacralism. That is the idea of the state church. Right? So, by the way, I didn't bring this up at, at the last session, but one of the reasons why the Anabaptists were, were so persecuted at the time of the Reformation was because they refused baptize their infants. Okay? That was seen not just as a theological error, but it was an act of treason. Because infant baptism was, was the basis of citizenship in, in the, the country you were born. It was the basis of taxation, military subscription, I mean, so, or conscription, and so to basically say we're not going to baptize our children was not just a crime against the church, it was a crime against the state. 
And so these, uh, I, to me, this is the this is the bad fruit of of this idea of, of classic covenant theology. So then we started in on the covenant of works, and uh, and and so just real briefly, we said that God made this covenant with Adam, and Adam had the law of God written on his heart. God had created Adam upright with the ability to obey. <clears throat> Uh, but Adam was, was mutable, so Adam hadn't been confirmed in his state of holiness or righteousness. And Adam stood there in the garden as the federal head or representative of the human race. God gives Adam a stipulation, a command in, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He is not to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat it, you die. So that's the stipulation. We said that that was, that was a positive law, okay? God could have said any number of things, right? Um, but the positive law is designed by nature to be a specific test of obedience, all right? We'll talk more about that in a second. Then there's the threat, the day that you eat it, you'll surely die. And then we said there's an implicit promise. There's a, there's a corollary to the threat, disobey and die. The corollary is obey and live. And so the, uh, the test itself was demonstrated by Satan coming into the garden. So Satan comes, and we read this in, in Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So the tree is, in a sense, a symbol of Adam's probation. And when we say probation, um, if you get hired for a, a, a new job, you might be on probation, let's say, for uh, 90 days. And what does that mean? You're on probation. checked out, alright, so you're not, you're not actually, a, you may be employed, but you're not, you're not in yet, right, there, it's, it's a test, it's a test, are you going to, are you going to be a good enough employee that we're going to want to keep you, so, Adam in a sense, in the garden, this is, this is probation, and the probation, nobody knows of course how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before they were tested, but it doesn't seem that, um, that it was that long, right? And so here's the serpent. So the entrance of the serpent into the garden, one of the great mysteries, right? I mean, here's, here's this perfect garden, and there's the serpent, you know? And so some people say, uh, and, and there's probably some merit to this, that, that Adam was supposed to guard the garden. And in his, in his priestly role of guarding the garden, the serpent gets in, and so anyway, the, the serpent then exploits, as it were, the positive law. So he brings that into focus. He doesn't say, go steal. He doesn't say, go commit adultery. He doesn't say, go murder. He points to the positive law, and 
if Adam would have obeyed, the implication is that he would have earned life for himself and his posterity. Now what exactly that look, would have looked like, nobody knows. But here's the thing, is that you see Adam in the garden, a probationary test. What's being indicated at that point is that, is that creation itself and Adam's role in creation is not, is not static. In other words, God's acts of creation in the first six days are, are now leading to something. God's probation of, with Adam is leading to something. Okay? And so the idea was, is that there was something beyond simply what God had initially done at creation, and perhaps, perhaps it's related to uh, some sort of Sabbath-oriented goal, an eternal Sabbath rest, something like that. But the reward for obedience, this is, this is an important thing. First of all, God entering into covenant with Adam was gracious. Now, by gracious, I don't mean grace in the sense like you and I need grace. You and I need grace because we're sinners. Adam was not a sinner, but God condescends to enter into a covenant with Adam. So it was gracious to begin with, the fact that God initiates the covenant. The fact that God offers Adam life, as it were, for obedience is also gracious. Because the reward would have been completely disproportionate to the obedience rendered. Okay? In, in one sense, you could say, God could have simply said to Adam, don't eat from that tree because I said so. Right? And if Adam would have obeyed, the only thing he could have claimed was, I did what I was obligated to do. Right? But that's not what God did. God ends up, as it were, um, having this implicit reward of life for a simple act of obedience. It would be like this. Um, the Tuckers say, let's say to Abby, Abby, go and clean your room, and if you clean your room, okay, which I don't know how big of a task that would be, but let's just assume that it was a relatively simple task, all right? Clean your room, and we will give you a new car. Okay. Now, a new car is out of proportion to the obedience rendered, right? So in that sense, God's entrance into this covenant with Adam was, um, was a gracious covenant, right? Now, Adam stands in, in, in uh, the role of federal head, and when Adam sins, we all sin in him, and we all die in him. This is uh, what is sometimes called um, original sin, but it is the imputation of Adam's sin, and the reality is, is, that, is that as Adam sins, 
he plunges all of his posterity into a state of sin and misery. I'm legally charged with Adam's sin as my federal head. I've been given, because of Adam, I've inherited a corrupt nature. I don't come into this world neutral. I don't come into this world as a blank slate. I come into this world with a bad record, that is, I already have a charge against me. And I come into this world with a bad heart. Okay? And then, as I commit acts of sin, what I'm doing is I am manifesting the very nature that I have uh, received, inherited from Adam himself. And so all of Adam's descendants are under the condemnation of the covenant of works. Adam violates the covenant of works. That violation is then charged to us. So as fallen people in Adam, we don't enter into a covenant of works with God because it's impossible for sinners to be brought into a covenant that says do this and live because we're already dead. Okay? But the obligation of the covenant of works and the condemnation of the covenant of works remain in place. So we come into this world and, and, and all of us as image bearers have an obligation to obey God. I think that there is a sense where um, the, the law is written upon the heart of every human being and their conscience testifies to that. So that I know, so, so as, a, as a little kid, if I told a lie, I didn't have to have my parents tell me that lying is wrong. I instinctively knew lying was wrong. I instinctively knew disobeying my parents was wrong. I instinctively knew stealing was wrong. Okay. I was just telling somebody the other day, I remember being in first grade, six years old, and uh, we were raised Catholic, we were raised very moral, you know. And I remember um, this would have been about 1972 uh, or 3, I guess. And a kid at school brought these uh, trading cards. And they had these, uh, they were funny cards with hot rods and funny, you guys remember these? You know, people that are older than younger people are like, what are you talking about? Um, and I was fascinated with these with these cards because they had incredible artwork. And I remember this kid had a stack of them on his desk. And so I kept walking by. And every time I walked by, I was tempted to take some of those cards. I don't think that my mother, with me being six, I don't think my mother had ever said, don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you because that's stealing, right? Six years old, I haven't had that conversation yet. I took some of those cards and I put them in my pocket. And I brought them home. And my conscience tortured me. I put those cards in my drawer and every time I looked over at that dresser, at that drawer, I knew I couldn't enjoy the cards. I'd look at them and my conscience would ravage me. So I took those cards back to school 
and I didn't do exactly the right thing, I should have fallen down on the ground and confessed my sins to the whole class and gave the cards back. Instead, I kind of snuck them in back into the kid's desk, you know. But here's the thing. Why in the world did I have a reaction like that? Because I've got the law of God imprinted on my heart, right? And I have a conscience that bears witness. Okay? So all of us are under the obligation of the covenant of works to render God personal and perpetual and perfect obedience. But all of us fail in that. And so we are all under the condemnation of that broken covenant both in terms of what Adam did and then our perpetual and personal disobedience of that law as well. The English poet John Donne has this poem that is so striking to me. He says, Adam sinned and I suffered. I forfeited before I had any possession or could claim any interest. I had a punishment before I had a being. And God was displeased with me before I was I. I was built up scarce 50 years ago in my mother's womb. And I was cast down almost 6,000 years ago in Adam's loins. I was born in the last age of the world but died in the first. How and how justly do we cry out against a man who has sold a town or sold an army. But Adam sold the world. So is there any other scriptural support for this idea of the covenant of works? So I say that the, uh, the Genesis 2, 16 and 17 passage is good. I would say that Romans 5 is, is incredibly important. But there's a couple of others that I'd like you to look at. The first is Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, and this passage is dealing with a coming universal judgment. It's coming upon the earth. Verse 5, Isaiah says, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed laws, violated, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. And so, as, as Old Testament scholars have wrestled with what Isaiah is, is talking about here, he's talking about something that's universal. So immediately some people kind of jump to, well, maybe the everlasting covenant is a reference to the covenant of Noah. The, the problem is, is that there aren't any stipulations in that covenant. There aren't statutes that were given, and, and yet the violation here is transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. I would suggest that what Isaiah has in mind here is the fact that this everlasting covenant is a covenant which is binding on all men universally for all time, and it is that covenant which all of us have broken. The other text is Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. 
You know, those minor prophets are hard to find, so it's page 1274. <laughs> okay, verse 6 is famous. For I delight in loyalty, 6 6. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And notice verse 7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant, therefore they have dealt treacherously against me. Now, does anybody have a different translation than, than this? But like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. Okay, like men, all right? Anybody have the old NIV? Okay, good. Glad to hear that. Anyway, the old NIV actually said, uh, at Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So here's, here's the interesting thing, is the obvious uh, other uh, alternative would be like how it reads, like Adam, that is our first parent, we've transgressed the covenant, right? Some people have said, well, it's just that Adam means man, and maybe man there is being used generically. So like men, they've transgressed the covenant. But you understand why that doesn't work, actually? It's because the Israelites were men. This would, this would be... Um, what would be called a, a tautology, it would be, like men, they've transgressed the covenant. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? It'd be like, um, uh, people eat, and you guys ate too. Okay? So the, the, the mankind view doesn't work very well, or, excuse me, humankind. But that doesn't work, okay? Then, others have argued that Adam is a place. Okay. Let, me just, let me just ask you, what, what do you think the likelihood would be for the prophet to take an example of the people of God violating a covenant, some covenant at some place which nobody knows of? Right? It, it's, it seems that the best way to understand this text goes simply like this. Like Adam, just like Adam violated the covenant, transgressed the covenant, they too have dealt treacherously with me. All right? One last passage I'd like you to look at, Romans chapter 1. I'm preaching through Romans uh, at, at our church, and I'm just about to finish chapter 2, and just having the, the time with my wife, I'll tell you. Now, in, in Romans 1, of course, Paul's talking about the way in which um, God is bringing judgment, like theme verses 18 the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and then he suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The way that that wrath is being revealed right now is in this phrase, and God gave him over, and God gave him over, 
and God gave them over. Alright? Now, what's interesting is, as Christians, we kind of look around at what's going on and we, we think that all of this that's going on around us is going to, uh, as it were, invoke the judgment of God. What Romans 1 is telling us is all of this that's going on around us is the judgment of God. There's a sense in which it's God withdraws uh, more and more of His common grace. That is an act of judgment of Him giving us over, you know, and then you can see what God gives us over to. Uh, depraved mind, distorted lust, and, uh, and disordered desires. Okay? That is the judgment of God. And so, Paul gets down to the end, and he gives this summary statement, and this, this never caught my attention before. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So there's no acknowledgement of God being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Right? Now, I took that list. And um, I should have brought it with me. I went through and identified how most of these are a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Either directly or indirectly. So here you have, he's not talking about Jewish people at this point. That doesn't come until chapter 2. Here you have, in a sense, sort of just a pagan, unbelieving world. And here they don't acknowledge God, and they are violating things which are definitely sins, which are violations of God's law. And then verse 32, although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What, what is it for an unbeliever to actually know the ordinance of God? Well, it, it, I think that it has to be a reference to this idea of a sense of, of, of moral, a moral compass and even a law that's been imprinted upon our hearts. Now, what happens is they know the ordinance of God, that is, they know the law of God. Why? I would say again, because of the notion of covenant words. They know the law, but they are so determined to defy God that not only do they violate that ordinance themselves, but they give their hearty approval to everybody else who does it. And this is what we're seeing in front of our very eyes. Things that in our society, in our culture, that just 25 years ago would have been considered really socially unacceptable are now brazen and blatant. And, and here's the thing, is that if you don't celebrate with them, I'm not even talking about just being tolerant. Okay? I'm talking about if you don't actually pitch in and celebrate with them, it's because you're a bigot. Now, have you ever wondered why that drive is to get you to celebrate my sin? If I know that I'm breaking the law of God, 
I'm violating the righteous ordinance of God. Do you know what I want more than anything else? I want affirmation that I'm okay. And this is what's happening before our very eyes. And it makes sense in light of the notion of a covenant of works that obligates all people at all times in all cultures. Right? Okay, so let me just uh, make a few conclusions here. So the covenant of works gives us a, fr a framework for both our understanding of, of anthropology, that is the nature of man, and then soteriology, that is the nature of salvation. So, anthropology, the covenant of works, best explains man's moral obligation to God and the penalty that he is under. Okay? This, by the way, is not just some sort of fine point of theology to be debated in, in theological halls. This has everything to do with the person that you're talking to at work. There, there is a sense where there is, you, you can have, um, you know, eco-feminist Nazi pagan witch right in front of you, okay? And you know what? There is a common ground. And that common ground is that that person is an image bearer who has the law of God implanted upon their heart. Now they may do, be doing everything they can to suppress that, but the fact is, is that they know what the obligation is and they know the penalty that they are under. The covenant works also best explains the imputation of Adam's sin. Okay. So, your heart is lost. Imputation rests on the covenantal relation and we stand in such covenantal relation only to Adam and not to ourselves. In, in a sense, one theologian put it many years ago, original sin is an empirically provable doctrine. Adam sinned and the race suffers. And it is the covenant of works that best explains Romans 5. The covenant of works also best explains humanity being under the curse of broken law. So, we'll talk more about this, but if we have broken the law, then we're under the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is the condemnation of the law. It is, it is the idea that, that people who now are completely unable to what the law obligates them to do, they're unable to do that, Therefore, they are under the curse and the condemnation of that law, and we need to be redeemed from it. It is the very notion of the covenant of works that actually gives us that sense of being under the curse of a broken law. Back when we started the church in, in uh, 94, um, Promise Keepers was huge. I don't know if you have the, those guys in Canada. Did you Promise Keepers? I was, I was thinking of starting a ministry called Covenant Breakers. I don't think it would have taken off very well, but that's, that's, that's exactly what we are, right? We're Covenant Breakers, we're Law Breakers, and we're under the curse of that broken law. Second part, Doctrine of Salvation. The Covenant of Works gives us the best structure for understanding the Gospel. 
the covenant of works, along with the idea of covenant of grace and covenant of redemption, give us the best explanation of the gospel. The covenant of works gives us the best framework for understanding um, the relationship of law to grace. The covenant of works gives us the best framework to understand the relationship of faith to works. So, so here's the thing. So Paul teaches us that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Do you know why no, law, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law in his sight? Because no one's able to do it. That's the point. Nobody is able to do it. You cannot be good enough to actually earn or merit life from God. And so, by saying, um, as it were, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, Paul is starting from the, the proposition that we come up to the batter's box with three strikes against us already. We are already out in Adam. No way to be justified by law. Period. Here's the interesting thing, though. Do you need to be justified by the law? Oh, think about it before you say no. Absolutely. Does God's standard ever change? God, God doesn't say, oh, I was hoping that law thing would work out. But now I've got to figure out something else. So let's do, let's try grace. Okay? That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. I love to tell people this. You, you do understand that you're saved by works, right? You are saved by works. Just not yours. <laughs> Alright? You are saved by the work of Christ. And so, so the covenant of works, what the covenant of works does for us is it, it actually gives us a framework to understand the first Adam and the last Adam. It, it explains as it were the parallel imputations of the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What is Christ's righteousness but his active obedience to the law of God? So, in a real sense, what the gospel is, what the covenant of grace is, is Jesus coming in as the last Adam and fulfilling the covenant of works that we could never fulfill so that we could be freed from the curse of the law and have a righteousness imputed to us, which actually is the basis of God's acceptance of us forever. And so, covenant of works actually explains this for us in a way that is, is crystal clear. The covenant of works explains for us the mediatorial work of Jesus. It explains for us, as it were, the substitutionary work of Jesus. I love the book of Job. Preached through the book of Job years ago. Job is agonizing. By the way, in Job 1 and 2, Job is sterling. He's outstanding. Chapter 3, things turn south. Okay? Job actually curses the day that he was born. Wishes that he never would have seen the light of day. But Job has a fundamental argument. 
his friends have a fundamental argument. The friend's fundamental argument goes like this. Job, we know that the righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. You are suffering, so let's walk this backwards now. If the wicked suffer, you must be wicked. You must have done something. They had a, a, a total uh, a retribution theology. Job's argument is, is simple. I haven't done anything to deserve this. Okay? Now in a sense, Job is right in that he did not do something that started a domino effect of these sin or these uh, calamities in his life. Alright? So Job's argument goes like this. I'm innocent. He's not saying he was sinless. I'm innocent. And if I could make my case, if God would give me a chance, I would be able to actually demonstrate that I don't deserve this. But here's my dilemma. Who has ever defied him without harm? I'd love to make the case, but he's bigger than me. I'd love to make the case, but I am not his equal. And so in Job 9, Job says this, I wish there were an umpire, a go-between, a mediator, who could lay his hand on him and me. The picture is, is, is stunning because the mediator has to be able to equally represent both parties. The idea of who could lay his hand on God and then on me, that is, who could actually mediate accurately representing God and faithfully representing me. And of course, it is the Lord Jesus who ends up being that mediator. And so here's Adam as that federal head. He blows it. He sins. But God sends His Son as the mediator of a new and a better covenant. And as mediator, He actually lays down His life, fulfills the conditions of that broken law, which, by the way, means that He pays the penalty for us in His death and His life merits for us a righteousness which makes us perfectly acceptable before God. And I would say that it is the covenant of works that actually helps these, these truths coalesce with a sense of unity and clarity. One of the things that, that evangelicals, broadly speaking, have been relatively bad at is is understanding the fullness of the doctrine of salvation. For many, salvation is reduced to the idea of forgiveness. And what we're going to see on Monday when we look at the New Covenant, forgiveness is wonderful. But you do realize that all of your sins could be forgiven today and you still would not be worthy to enter into heaven. Because it's not simply the remission of sin that makes you right with God. He requires perfect righteousness. Christ pays the penalty for, the, for our sins. And He also lived for me in a way that He obeyed in a way that I knew.
never could. And so it is my sin imputed to Christ. Christ pays the penalty of that sin. And it is Christ's righteousness imputed to me that makes me stand before the Father complete. You want to know the good news of the gospel? If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ tonight, you are as justified as you will ever be. Even on the last day, you won't be more justified than you are right now in Christ. But do you know when your justification is really going to matter? On that last day. Okay? You're going to stand, I'm going to stand before the judgment bar of Almighty God. And I'm either going to stand there in Adam under a covenant of works or in Christ in the covenant of grace. If I stand there on my own, I'm done. But when I stand there before God on that day, my sins will be declared acquitted. My righteousness will be declared complete. And what I now possess by faith will then be mine by sight. That's the gospel. And it's the covenant of works that gives us a foundation for understanding these very important gospel truths. And so I know that you, know, you guys are all nice, upstanding people and um, very polite. Canadians are unbelievably polite. If you, could, if you could get to heaven by being polite, Canadians would be like, first in line, right? But here's the thing, is that nice people, nice people need salvation. Polite people need salvation. Good church-going people need salvation. Religious people need salvation. And there is salvation in none other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, regardless of what you may think about the covenant of works, make sure that you look to Jesus and Jesus alone as your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and I thank you for uh, the revelation of your word and the way that you teach us and Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that this is, is not confusing but clarifying for us and I pray that you would receive all of the honor and that your son would be exalted in Christ's name.